This is Shifting Our Schools episode 124, Design for Resilience, a framework for the future of schools. Listen up, educators. Are you looking to take your classroom to the next level? The technological shift in education is happening right now. If you're looking to integrate technology into your classroom, you're in the right place. Welcome to Shifting Our Schools with your host, Jeff Udick. Well, welcome back to another episode of Shifting Our Schools. Thank you for listening and subscribing to us in your favorite podcast player. If you aren't subscribed, you can do that now. Just search for Shifting Our Schools wherever you listen to podcasts, even in Spotify, which is nice. So you can just ask your Amazon Echo or your Google Home, hey, play the latest episode of Shifting Our Schools podcast, and you'll get the latest episode streaming through your device. This podcast finds us on the other side of the Memorial Day weekend, which means here in the state, state of Washington, we have four weeks to go in the school year, one that I know none of us will ever forget. We continue to support close to 4,000 teachers across the state of Washington through our Reimagine Washington Education Program, a program that is continuing to see success in supporting districts, schools, and educators through this emergency distance learning situation we find ourselves in. In our trainings, we're now turning our focus away from emergency distance learning and are starting to focus in on what good distance learning should look like from a district, school, and classroom perspective. These three levels must work together in order to support both students and families in this age of distance learning we find ourselves in. In one survey I read recently from a school district here in Washington, parents wanted school and teachers to focus on less tools. We know keeping our learning system simple supports both learners and parents and is why we continue to focus on what we are calling the core four or the four apps that make up your essential learning system. This will continue to be a key step into the future. Understand that four apps, their purpose and intent, and then support your students and parents on knowing them as well is critical as we move forward. Districts and school leaders must take control in guiding this work around what we are calling core four. The four apps should be around the learning principles we continue to talk about through Reimagine Washington Ed. Those four principles are this. Number one, a home base otherwise known as a learning management system, and a place for students to go. It should be the first place that students check for their homework. It should be where you drop all your new material. And it really is the center of your core four experience. App number two, some kind of cloud-based storage, either Google Drive or Microsoft OneDrive. One of those, but not both. Number three, a synchronous video program, such as Skype, Zoom, or Google Meets, to create community and support students. And fourth, a video recording app such as Screencast-O-Matic or Screencastify or Loom to create instructional videos for students. You find four tools that do that and you are well on your way to creating a system that has focus and all the pieces you need now and into the future. We want these tools to be the same across the district so that siblings and friends can support each other as well in their learning. The core four should be adopted district-wide and be at the focus of professional development training and support from the district to educators, parents, and students. The core four approach works. We have seen it implemented in districts large and small across our state who have been able to solidify their core four for their community and start talking the same distance learning system. Only after you have your core four established can a school system move forward into distance learning. If your district or school never established your core four, I would strongly recommend you do that before the start of next school year. If you need help or support in understanding any of this or want to learn more about what we are doing here in the state of Washington, please feel free to reach out to me at sospodcast at gmail.com. This week, I share with you a webinar that I hosted called Design for Resilience, a framework for the future of schools from Greg Bamford and Tara John. I continue to receive emails about this webinar and its impact on schools and school leaders. I have posted a link to the video version, the presentation, and the chat from the webinar in the show notes below, as well as Greg's original blog post that I believe is a great starting point for every school as we start to think about the 2021 school year. And with that, on with the show. Thank you, everyone for joining us here at Reimagine Washington Ed. I know a lot of you, it looks like, have been going through our trainings. I hope that those continue to go well for you moving forward uh, as we continue to uh, 
talk about reimagining education now and into the future in our state. Uh, again, we were just debriefing before this, the team and I, and, and just another great day of amazing stories coming out. Uh, from you. But we wanted to also focus in on, uh, the, I read a blog post by Greg uh, about, a, I don't know, Greg, when you when you posted that a week or two ago. I think I've read it like eight times at this point. And uh, I still read it and I learn new things and think about new things every time I go through it. So I really appreciate that. And his partner, Tara, are here to kind of support us as leaders and talking about what the future should look like and what are some things we should uh, be focusing on. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to you, Greg, um, and let you and Tara run the show here for a bit. And we are here to support you any way we can. I've got that poll ready whenever you're ready for that, too. So. Awesome. Are you seeing a, I think, I suspect I wanted you to see slides, but I think you're looking at a spreadsheet. Is that right? Um, I don't you're see anything at a blank that, screen that says Greg Kimford is That's no good. Are you looking at slides yeah. now? Yes. yes. Awesome. Great. That's what we need to look at. Um, so hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Greg Bamford, um, and I am a senior partner at a nonprofit organization called Leadership and Design that works with the schools around the country. I'm also currently finishing up my time here in beautiful Tacoma, Washington, the city of destiny, uh, where I am, I work at a school called Charles Wright Academy. I'm turning it over to my partner here, Tara, to introduce herself. Hi, um, my name is Tara Curry-Jan, and I also am in a, with Leadership and Design, I'm an associate. And um, although I'm from Alaska originally, so I went through Washington a lot when I was growing up. So I have a great um, connection to you all. So thanks for inviting us. Um, just a little bit of background on the organization. Leadership in Design, as, as Greg said, is a national nonprofit. We um, are collecting staff. It seems to be in all corners of the country. We have California. I'm in Colorado right now, Indiana, and Washington. Um, and so just briefly, we are really focused on building design or designing experiences for the people who create the future of teaching and learning. And we do this by three core pillars in design, where each each of these three show up in all of our work, but we focus on some more than the others based on what need we're trying to meet. One of those being building capacity, uh, skills and, and tools with educators and leaders, creating conversations with um, one another across different regions, across topics, across industries, and hoping to make connections um, through those conversations, both to one another as human beings, but also um, by making connections through content topics, provocative um, ideas, things like that. So really hoping to like, to make, to as a human-centered organization, meet needs by those three pillars. And then the way that we conduct our work as, as, a, as a team, and then also in the way that we serve all of our clients and in our programs, we guide our work by our core values of people, collaboration, transformation, action, and joy. Thanks, Tara. Um, well, a little bit about what we're hoping to do in the next 90 minutes. We're going to spend about 60 minutes presenting, and then we're hoping to preserve about 30 minutes for Q&A, and I hope that Tara and I have some ideas and can help you with the Q&A, but I also want to acknowledge that, like all of us, we are all figuring out in real time how to adjust uh, what we know about school and what we're used to about school uh, to the COVID-19 world. Um, we're going to start with a check-in, and then I will spend a little bit of time discussing the Design for Resilience framework. Um, we are going to spend some time talking then about how you might use that framework to plan for next year. First, by designing from needs, and secondly, by designing from scenarios. And I'll present some tools and ideas for how you might do that work in your buildings. Um, we are going to do a little bit of promo at the end, but I promise it won't be too bad. It'll be like two minutes to talk about this cohort program that we are building this summer in response to a number of the requests we've gotten after we publish this article. And then we'll close it out. And actually, I should have added Q&A. And then we're hoping to have about half an hour for Q&A. Um, and then Tara and I will be available by email. So that's our plan. Does that sound like what you thought, Jeff? Awesome. Let's, let's move into this. Oh, and Tara, we're not doing this in breakouts. We're doing this in the chat. Way ahead of you, Greg. You're way ahead. Um, which is perfect okay. because in our time constraint of 60 minutes, this is a perfect yeah. opportunity to have that chat room working as a breakout room. So um, thinking about what your um, life has been like or what your life is currently, just a quick prompt of what's the title of this chapter of your story as a school? Some examples, the strange man's arrival, the plot thickens, or the boy who, is it lived? I can't see, yeah. Um, and I think it's also interesting that although these are all, these are all 
chapter one examples. This doesn't have to be, you can also call it a different chapter if you want to get creative. So go ahead in that chat box, type in what the title of your chapter is right now, and then go ahead after you put it uh, in, read others as you, as you uh, can scroll through. It's a big group, so you can just kind of watch as they get entered. Yeah, I think we can make it. We're not in Kansas anymore. The storm. Living the dream. <laughs> chapter 20, I love it. I wonder how many chapters are in that book. True, that is chapter 20, that's a good point. Yeah. We might just not be there yet. Or it could be a hundred chapter book. That's true. Feeling non-essential question mark. Oh, we're all in this together. Nice, positive, community-oriented. One that just looked like an Alanis Morissette song. We have pause, just kidding, no seriously, literally whatever. Six foot learning. We got Joe Roberts made a big one that I've seen a lot in some of our conversations of toddler pregnancy and teaching during COVID-19. It's either a short or a long chapter. Cool. Great. Awesome. Well, we start, we start there in part because it's fun um and it's it's just a great i think it's so important for us who work in schools to take some time to connect with other human beings who can relate to like what we've been going through over the last couple months especially at a time where we're missing those hallway conversations that we i think enjoy most of us enjoy with our colleagues um but also because i think it's important to acknowledge how emotional the last few months have been and i think acknowledging the emotional cycle that has happened in parallel with the task or work cycle um, makes it easier for us to plan for what's ahead because we are designing next year around um, not only a set of tasks that need to happen, um, but a set of emotions that we need to support and manage. Uh, emotions of our families, of our colleagues, our teachers, our kids, um, our community um, as we work our way through this whole process. Um, my experience of creating the Design for Resilience framework was really born out of that same uh, that same emotional state, you know, kind of trying to understand what was happening and what I was going through and feeling sometimes really exhilarated and hopeful about the future, um, but also at other moments like really frustrated and angry or confused or stuck. Um, and as I was out going for runs, I began to think about um, how we might understand this experience in terms of stages. And that is what led um, to the model that I proposed in the article that you've all been nice enough to read. Um, before I share it, I want to share one of my favorite quotes, and it's from a British statistician of the last century whose name is George Box, and he says, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Um, and I, I share that with you because I'm proposing in this article a model of reality that is, like, not entirely true, right? It's simplistic. Like, I used Google. This is just Google. This is just like a Google slide. Um, and reality is always messier than any one Google slide. Um, but it was also helpful for me as someone in a school to have something tidy that could help me understand and begin to interpret uh, the experience that I was having. Um, in this model, um, and you've read the article, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Um, what I was finding in my experience was that there really was this experience of triage. Um, that at the very beginning, we were just trying to figure out, like, how do we tell students where to log into class? if they're not on campus and then if, like, how do I tell them to log into class if I need them to log in to learn how to log into class? How do I teach teachers how to set up some version of remote learning if I can't gather a group of 50 or more people in the commons or the library to figure it out together? Um, how are we going to make sure kids have technology if they don't have uh, technology at home? How are we going to check in with them? Those logistical questions were really overwhelming. Um, and really kind of all-consuming, I think, for most of us who worked in schools. 
Um, I then found there was a period about the time that I started drafting this article where I was able to kind of catch my breath a little bit and start to think about how do we do this well? This was starting to take longer than I think any of us thought it would. Um, when our school decided to close, we announced like 12 hours before the governor's order in Pierce County. Um, so 12, 12 hours later, it was moot whether or not we wanted to. Um, you know, we thought it was going to be like four or six weeks, right? We'd all be coming back. And then we realized like, oh no, we really have to get good at this because this is going to be a while. Um, and then we started moving into a phase of adaptation. And my experience, and I then began talking it out with other school leaders, was that we shifted a little bit from these logistical concerns that were on the front burner, moved to the back burner. They didn't necessarily go away, but they moved to the back burner. And now that we had a schedule and we had some rituals and people knew where to find their homework and we had some routines, we had to really have a conversation as a community of educators about how we can do this well and, and how we teach well in a virtual realm. Um, and we started moving through that. And what I was really thinking about was, started thinking about during this time was, how do we move beyond adaptation and how do we actually set ourselves up for next year? Because unfortunately, it looks like next year will not be back to normal. And I think there is such a human, understandable desire to just like get our life back the way it was. And I think I'm now at the point where I don't think, you know, whatever that life was, there will be things about that that remain, there will be things about that that change, and there'll be things about that that are gone forever. And so how do we move forward and plan for next year? When I, and that, that really is for me what Designing for Resilience is about. You know, how, with the advantage of time, how do we plan for this and develop systems that are better and stronger, that can flex as scenarios change, that can adjust, where we can move on and off campus if that's what we need to do? How can we plan for that with the advantage of the time that we didn't have back in March. And I'll be honest, like two months, no, two months, two weeks before we closed, if you had said, Greg, school's gonna close for the rest of the year, I wouldn't have believed you. And maybe that's a failure of imagination on my part, but I don't think I'm alone, right? It felt like it happened pretty quickly. And, and so now that we have some time, how do we plan and build some systems? Um, and what occurred to me is as we're doing that, we really, again, are, are, are asking ourselves systems questions. One note that I want to hit on um, that was part of the conversation as I shared this with other school leaders and they, they suggested a lot of improvements or refinements was that for some people I know there's a desire to use this as an opportunity to reimagine education. Um, I will also say my experience is those people are not people currently working full time in schools. Um, and the reason I make that distinction is I think it's always a good time to reimagine education. But what I was experiencing was a real practical desire to plan next year in advance of any conversation about what school might look like in five or 10 years as a result of this. And that's what Designing for Resilience is all about. Um, so that model, right, all models are wrong, right? Like life is messier than this, but hopefully this model is useful. And for me, what's useful about it is it allows me to put my concerns into buckets. What I don't like about this slide and what I maybe have to pay a designer to do for me at some point is I don't think it's as neat as saying, now we're done with triage and we get to only focus on adaptation. If I'm thinking about our school, we're a little bit in triage and adaptation and designing for resilience all at the same time, right? I don't know that, that those earlier phases ever entirely go away. And so with that, I wanna ask you a question. I think Jeff has a poll. That we can issue and the question is where is most of your school most of the time which phase would you put yourselves in um if you had to if you had to vote so we're going to give you about a minute to log your vote. Hopefully that popped up on your screen. I see that there are votes coming in. Uh, so about 30 more seconds. Uh, Doreen has a clarifying question. Do you mean during COVID or always? Oh, <laughs> I mean right now, like as of today. As of today, yeah. as of today. 
I guess I say most of the time because it may be that you're sometimes in each of them, but you're mainly in one of them. All right, I'm going to close this in three, two, one. Poll is closed. And I can share those results with everybody. This is interesting. This is the this is the third time we've offered some version of this webinar, um, and it's always more or less like this. There's this bell curve, right? Of some triage, some people looking ahead and designing for resilience. Most of us in this phase of adaptation, um, and then of course a lot of us just man, depending on the minute or the meeting or which teacher or student I'm working with, I could be all over the place. And this webinar is really designed for those of us that want to be thinking ahead about how we might design for resilience, how how we might actually do this work. Of building a more resilient uh, systems or practices as a school. That's that's what we're hoping to do today. Cool. And again, we're I think we don't have the breakouts function, so we're gonna. I just don't remember Tara if you hit that as we move into this. Yeah, I mean, so Greg, are we should we just use the chat box? I think that's what we're gonna do. Yeah. Yep. So again, another opportunity to go ahead and think about. Um, what's been going on at your school. And so this is kind of looking back and saying, within each of those areas over the, the kind of like the arc of the experience that Greg talked about at his own school and his own experience as a leader, there's been those, what I was calling gaps, we can also call them wards, design opportunities, um, pain points, delight points. It, the, what do you call it is, is slightly irrelevant other than those things that you realize, oof, that doesn't feel like it's supposed to go that way. And that could be anywhere between the way you trained your teachers, the way that parents got information about they needed, student behavior data. So it's just kind of thinking about what's been going on um, between at triage and adaptation and kind of just thinking about a story that felt like a gap or a design opportunity. And go ahead and post those um, in a concise manner in, in the uh, chat box. And then once again, feel free to read over what other people have contributed. We'll give you a few minutes to do that. And Greg, we have a question about putting the phases up again. If you could just go back yeah. to that slide. Oh, there we go. So yeah, we're thinking about those first two phases where some of us are currently living and others that may, we may have moved past but revisit sometimes. I really would encourage um, if you're if you're already typed in, go ahead and read some of the others that are in that chat box. Really good perspectives on what people have kind of experienced, and even the transition. I saw uh, going from giving out packets and worksheets to Chromebooks the following month, just like that very rapid shift.
And it's also interesting looking at some of these without that lens of judgment from that beginner's mindset with saying like some of these shifts without saying they're good or bad in the way that they were handled, but just kind of looking at them impartially is valuable. Great. Greg, I'll let you make the call on when we want to move forward. Okay. These are great examples. And I think it, this is a conversation that you could have with your teams, with your faculty. This would be a conversation about, um, you know, what have you experienced in each of these phases? And I think part of what is great about it is it gives you permission uh, to talk about how difficult the last months have been and weeks. I appreciate those of you who acknowledge the grief that you went through, that grieving process. And sometimes when we're working really hard just to serve our kids and serve our teachers, um, we don't always notice maybe what we're going through and the grieving that is being processed at the same time. And then, of course, acknowledging the grieving that our kids are going through as they, um, you know, lose a community and lose a home and, and adjust as well. Um, so this, maybe this is something that you that you bring back to your groups, right, as a way of helping you uh, make sense of what's happened and, and open up some conversations about processing what's happened. Cool. It's also, I would imagine, just as like a final note on that, thinking about the amount of, if you're, you're probably a group of, of innovative educators who are trying to drive change in your school and districts, and it's interesting to think of how many years many of you have been pushing against that system and asking for one-to-one -one devices or asking for like awareness that not all students have access to internet at home and that all the equity issues that come with technology and, and um, you know, focused learning environments and, and childcare, things like that. And yet very quickly, a lot of those decisions were made for us. And so it's just interesting to, and like to kind of revel in the fact of like, what an opportunity also. Cool. Awesome. So then thinking, wait, is this you, Greg? No, no, I was, I was doing this like, is it me or you? I think it's you. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a little bit about what we were, we were starting to say. It's like, when we think about those gaps and, and telling those stories of what you did, and like, this is maybe where you kind of can offer in that lens of like overlay the judgment of when those things happen, those stories, those, those adaptations through your process of what you've been going through, what are those opportunities for design? Like, what are those things where like, did go well, didn't go well, would you like to do them differently? You did them in a way that wasn't as user-centered as you would have liked. So this is thinking about like, when we're trying to move our system to resilience, what are those, the gaps, the warts, the things that we would like to design against now that we have kind of felt and felt what they feel like, and then look forward. So as you mine those gaps, and you're welcome to, you're welcome to type some of those gaps because we're gonna come back to it, so you're welcome to type that in the chat. Um, part of what I hope the Design for Resilience framework helps you do is to maybe like sort some of these tasks, these like endless to-do lists that we're all struggling with into some different buckets. Right, that we have a set of logistical questions that we are going to have to keep um, figuring out that really are like triage questions. We're going to have a set of pedagogical issues, pedagogical questions that are really adaptation questions. And then we're going to have a relatively small but really important set of true design challenges that we are going to have to wrestle with. And it's like figuring out those design challenges that are going to help us um, design for resilience next year. As you have these conversations in your buildings, talking about what triage was like, what adaptation was like, is so helpful because when you identify those gaps that people are entering into the chat, when you're identifying those gaps, 
those often will help you understand what the design challenges might be. And as, as some of you noted in the chat, those design challenges are not only problems, they're also in some ways opportunities um, to rethink things and to get better as a, as a community of learners. And also when you're thinking about those, even like when you're talking as Greg just poised to with your teams thinking about what was the experience for you? Because you were a user in, in, in a lot of areas. Like if you were a teacher or a principal, you had to experience certain things as a user in the system, but then also recognizing that the other users all had different experiences and even and trying to get to the point of when we're pulling out gaps, something for that might have worked very smoothly for some groups of students might not have worked for others. And so being really intentional about the gaps and for whom, especially if you want to, I mean, if you are focusing on equity issues or teacher tenure, I mean, like if there's certain teachers that are more advanced in certain areas or not, like being intentional about the users that you're talking about when you're discussing and making conversations around who, whose experience was what. Okay. So as we think about sorting your tasks, those, that endless list of tasks facing school leaders right now, into buckets. Um, we want to talk a little bit more about just what design challenges are, and then we'll we'll get into how we might begin to uh, address and, and get into some design design issues at our school. Yeah, and so this is just a, a pretty high level um, brainstorm of what we kind of what helps us guide what we call design challenges, and those tend to be sticky or systemic uh, challenges that impact humans. And I phrase it in that way to say that humans are you know like that a lot of we are in the business of solutions, providing a service to people, to families, to the economy, to students. And so these are those things where it's saying like, what are those things that we just haven't gotten right? What are those things that keep perpetuating? We have the equity issues. We have student agency issues. We've got parent and, um, you know, parent engagement, staff engagement. So what are those things that like we have thrown solutions at them over and over again, and they're just not necessarily the right solutions. And so, uh, and, and maybe, um, we want to keep looking at. So then the second being like previous solutions that may not have worked well and or solutions no longer work, right? We've all seen the images of children sitting in rows. We've all seen blackboards and now we've replaced those with a few different iterations of that, but not, but saying that like, just because there's other solutions out there doesn't mean they're going to be the solutions in the future. Um, and or like, you know, some truancy or some behavior uh, interventions work, but are they working as well as we need them to be working? So being, that could be a design challenge just to say like, yeah, like it's just not working as well for all students. And um, the solution must be informed by or confirmed by those responsible for using or being impacted by that challenge. That goes back to the first one around impacting humans. So the design challenge saying that we need to be aware that the people who are the consumers of any solution at any level should be involved in the process of the of the solution making. So sometimes, you know, some especially when we talk logistical and safety, some of those logistical conversations, obviously, we would make it work for the people in the system. But there's just like a yes or no on how do you keep um, you know things clean, for example. Yet we would the manner and the inclusiveness of how we support that solution, we would be able to um, involve those humans. And then I think that that's kind of the last point is it doesn't involve a simple yes or no or an either or. Do we use bleach or do we not use bleach? Do we let groups of 50 get really close to one another or do we not? Like those are more of like the, system, like the sticky or the easy yes or no questions, which there's other very smart people that are creating solutions for those. We're trying to say we might not have the best answer yet. That's why we should talk to some people. So as we think about making our schools more resilient for next year, there are whole buckets of challenges um, that we are facing. And one of the reasons why I developed this taxonomy of challenges is to encourage us on teams to make sure that we're not missing uh, something. Um, some of these questions I'm borrowing because we do a lot of work with independent schools and they may not be relevant to you, but certainly making sure you're thinking about what are the design challenges in terms of having a commitment to equity and justice in your school? What are the pedagogical design challenges? What are the technology challenges? Culture, time, people, policy. Um, and there's some value, I think, in mapping that out and saying, okay, have we actually thought about all of these areas? Or is there maybe a part of our program that we need um, really to ask hard questions about as we plan for the year ahead? Um, 
with that, now we want to brainstorm a little bit um, what, what needs to be redesigned. You know, if these are the gaps, what are the systems, what are the structures, um, what are the pieces of your program and the way you normally do school that maybe need to be redesigned for next year? I'll give you some time to enter that in the, uh, enter that in the chat. And feel free to kind of level these up and make them more like a systemic challenge. You use that when design thinking, we use that framing around how might we, which signals possibility that we ought to do something about it and that we're going to do it together. That's kind of the how might and the we. So feel free to like either jot it in the, as like just a topic of what needs to be resigned or if, feel, if you want to put it in that phrase, feel free to do that. That last comment was actually just for Tara, but I don't know how to use the chat. <laughs> we're just communicating on whether or not we're on time. Yeah, I'm just wondering what that is. Great. So there's a lot to redesign, right? I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. This is not the, uh, unfortunately, right? This is not the summer that you thought you were getting into when you got into education. Um, this unfortunately will be a summer where we're doing a lot of work with our colleagues to get ready and not just get ready in the normal way, but rethink how we get ready and rethink what we're doing for next year. Um, and so what I want to start to do is to talk about how you might begin to do some of that design work um, in your buildings. Um, well, and Greg, it's also interesting to think yeah. of, and I would say go through again, if you have time and I, I think Jeff will probably send this chat out, but knowing that a lot, I mean, some of these topics were the solution, right? And so sometimes in design, we want to even like bring it up that level, like what was that solution trying to solve for? And is that still relevant? We leadership in design hosted a design for graduation workshop the other day. And it was this concept of like graduation as a ritual was designed very long ago that and for specific reasons that we might not be connected to in our current um, culture. And so instead of just continuing to like perpetuate those rituals, should we think, um, should we think about what the unmet needs were in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's some of the work that we have to do as school leaders is to unpack for people when they come to us with a problem, especially if it is one that really is a solution, you know, like we need a different way of distributing Chromebooks, which is maybe a solution, um, is to do the work of unpacking like what's the need that that person is trying to tell me about. Um, and so that's, that's the work we do at Leadership and Design. At Leadership and Design, among many things, we're informed by a design thinking process and a design thinking mindset. Some of you might recognize this. This is the design thinking model um, from Stanford's Design School or the D School, um, which shows kind of five thinking hats for this process. Um, and today we're really gonna talk about the first two of these. We're gonna talk about empathy and empathizing and really understanding uh, human needs, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, problem definition and the benefit of problem definition and how that can unlock maybe some new opportunities for us in our buildings. Um, and I'll try to give you some concrete ideas for how you might do that. And hopefully there's a lot of questions uh, when we get to the Q&A. So doing this, doing this work, how do we do this? The first principle we really want to talk about is the principle of designing for needs and really having an understanding of the needs of the people um, who you serve, your parents, your students, uh, the colleagues, educators, and staff that you work with um, in your communities. Um, and I say this because all of us have important rituals in our school. Um, an assembly, for example, is one common ritual or practice uh, when school happens on campus and it serves important needs. Um, when we were thrust kind of in triage into remote learning, um, what we automatically tend to do, and many of us did this, is to say, how do we do this thing that we did on campus? How do we do that same thing just now, not on campus? And so instead of looking like this, assembly started to look like this, um, which is still kind of the same basic idea of having a bunch of kids generally listening to an adult or maybe a curated set of students. Um, but the idea was more or less the same, right? We have, uh, an, we have this on-campus practice of an assembly, Therefore, we need some sort of remote or virtual version of this practice. Um, what we are encouraging schools to do as they design for resilience is to move beyond that kind of translation and instead start to think in terms of needs and design for needs, right? Really asking ourselves, what need does this on-campus practice serve? Um, if we do something a certain way when we're together in a building, 
why do we do that? What's the human need that's at the heart of that? Um, and we want to spend a little bit of time talking about what needs are from a design thinking standpoint, because we're using that word need in a specific way that isn't necessarily the same as how we use it in our everyday um, conversation. So the core of this, and kind of one way to know whether or not you're talking about a need or talking about a solution, right? This is the point Tara was making, is that needs are verbs and solutions are nouns. So if someone comes to you and says, we really need more Chromebooks, I'm not saying they're wrong, but they're actually offering you a solution. Um, and a good design thinking practice is to try to understand what the need is that they're trying to fulfill by getting more Chromebooks. Um, if you can get at the need, you often have more opportunities. You often have more ways you can solve the problem. Um, and maybe the solution they offer, maybe those Chromebooks really are the right way to solve that problem, but maybe there are actually some other ways to do it. So I'm looking at this photo and I'm gonna ask you to use the chat again. And I want you to think about what does this little boy need? Remembering that needs are verbs and solutions are nouns. There's one thing you learned today. Great, right? So I mean, I see people right framing it in terms of like a design need, which is a verb, right? He needs access. He needs a way to reach. He needs to be able to climb. Um, he needs access to knowledge. Um, and some of these things are really solutions, like a ladder, which may or may not be the right way to meet his need, right? A ladder presumes the solution. Um, but if we think of this in terms of him needing a way to access knowledge, there are lots of ways that we could solve this situation, which might involve a ladder. They might involve some other way to get the book. They might not involve books at all, if the issue is really access um, in terms of accessing knowledge. Um, so framing things as a design need sometimes unlocks just more opportunities. And what's great is sometimes those additional opportunities are things that like require less budget or have less bureaucracy or don't require you to go to like work with the district office, depending on what that relationship's like, they maybe give you more opportunities and more ways in which you can uh, approach the challenge. So thinking in the same way, right? Needs are verbs, solutions are nouns. What is the need that is being met in this school when they have an assembly like this? They don't need an assembly. They have another need that the assembly is trying to satisfy. And what, what might those needs be? Yeah, I really encourage you if you if you're done typing again to scroll through and see the needs that people are that people are identifying, right? We do these things when we're on campus for a reason. So then our opportunity is if we're practicing design thinking as school leaders to ask ourselves how else might we serve that need if we're not able to meet that need in the same way because we're not able to get you know 500 students in a gym. And that might be because we're remote. It might mean because we're back on campus next year, but we need to keep students in pods of 30 or fewer to maintain social distancing, right? How else do we serve that need if we can't meet it in the original way? So rather than going straight from an on-campus practice to a remote learning practice, or straight from an on-campus practice to a socially distanced practice, right? Thinking backwards to what's the human need that we need to meet, and then based on that need, designing something that might look different that can happen during remote learning or that can happen in a socially distanced scenario, which we might have next year, or maybe it could happen in a hybrid scenario. I know some of the scenarios people are looking at, or maybe only half the students are on campus at any given time. What are some other practices that can meet that same need? And that then I think sets us up with our teams when we're trying to figure out what to do to have a much better conversation if first we agree on the need that we're trying to meet. Right. In that case, a lot of you said connection and community. That's one of the needs I think, I don't think it's the only need, that's one of the needs that I think assemblies fill. And then you can ask yourself, how might we create that sense of connection to a larger community when students are off campus? And maybe it does look like that Zoom call with lots of kids listening to adults, but maybe it looks like something else. Yeah, and I think being also aware that by filling one need, does a set of other needs pop up? Does requiring students to have six hours of Zoom time so they can have content needs met, does that then create health and wellness needs or supervision and technology needs? So just kind of like when you're identifying the needs and starting to build out solutions, how can you also go say, 
we got to keep an eye out for what else might be coming up. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's, I think you're, 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 it's easier to meet all of those needs if you're not assuming that the way you did it on campus is the way you're going to do it, is the way you're going to do it next year. So then there's some work to do to ask yourself, like, how do you know what your students are experiencing or your families um, or your, your faculty and staff, right? How do you know that? Um, and how do you know what their needs are? And I want to talk a little bit about how you might start to dig at some of that. Um, the first thing is really to have a conversation rather than sending out a survey. Um, we are so used to surveys, we are primed for surveys. We're not only primed to send them, people are used to receiving them. Um, people love surveys, like who doesn't want to give feedback and tell you what they think you should do? People love telling me what they think I should do, they do it all the time. Um, but it isn't necessarily always a way to get at what the need is. Because what a survey tends to do is it encourages people to generate solutions, rather than helping you collect stories that help you understand and define needs. Um, so one sentence starter, so I said before, if there's one thing you learned today, this is like another one of those, if there's one thing you learn and maybe practice this week, it's the sentence starter, tell me about a time. And I like tell me about a time um, because it's a sentence starter that invites someone to tell you a specific story of a specific moment, rather than telling you in general what's happening. And the reason I say this is if you ask people in general, like what's quarantine like, they're gonna tell you like it's horrible. Or if you say like, how is school, right? A kid is gonna say fine. But if you can ask a really specific question for a specific moment, you're gonna get more texture, right? You're gonna get more of the like little things that are unusual. And you're less likely to get an idealized version or a polite version of what's really happening, right? So for example, if you to ask me, hey, Greg, tell me about like what you eat for dinner. I'm tempted to give you a really idealized version of what I eat, right? Like maybe it's like a grilled protein and like a kale salad and right? Like this thing that I think I eat and I do eat sometimes. And maybe I want you to think I eat. But if you tell me, Greg, what did you eat last night for dinner? Like it might not be quite as healthy, right? It might be more like representative of what I actually do. So tell me about a time as a way of inviting that story that is going to have more details and more nuance and help you understand how people are living their lives right now. And these are some of the sentences you might ask, but they're not the only ones, right? Tell me about a class on Zoom that worked really well. Tell me about a time you felt connected with a teacher even after we left, right? If you're talking to a family member or caregiver, tell me about a time you struggled to support your child's learning at home. And in those stories, um, then you can take them and reflect later as a team and say, okay, what's the need that's not being met here? And it's a great way to have a conversation with someone like, tell me about what happened yesterday at school. Tell me about what happened yesterday as you did your homework. Where were you as you did that homework? What was happening? And again, those details are going to help you unpack what the needs may be. Another One, great, yeah. Another great way to, to, to even get deeper in the unpacking is the, the word why. And, and there's frameworks of five whys and essentially just asking why to the point of you might both be being annoyed but that's getting to those deeper levels is where you can really unpack some of that like oh well why was the zoom really that terrible and so tell me about is that great entry into the conversation but then making sure that you create space for that digging in and then having that conversation watching for visual cues on what might be kind of the writing between the lines Absolutely, those follow-up is really important because the first thing people might say might just be kind of surface level. And as Tara says, right, it's that digging in and following up where you're really going to get some of the interesting details. Um, one of the tools that we wanted to share with you, which is free, or at least there is a free version, and I love free stuff, um, is mural.co, um, which is just right over here. Um, and one of the ways you might debrief some of these conversations with your team or with your colleagues, or maybe even this group, which sounds like it's a, it's a group that meets more than once together, um, is by building an empathy map. And in this empathy map, um, it provides four quadrants, a quadrant for you to digest what people are saying, what they're thinking, what you see them doing, and how they may be feeling. And what I love about the empathy map is it challenges us to go beyond kind of what people are saying, which is super important, but also challenges us to pay attention to what we observe in their behavior. Right? Like, what does it mean if every student is logging in five minutes late for class? Or if you're having a certain email, a kind of email exchange with faculty again and again, like, what does that behavior maybe show? 
right? So we're looking at says and does, both of which are observable. It also challenges us to infer meaning, right? To think about what, what do we think they're thinking? What do we think they're feeling? And by framing all of those out, I think it challenges us sometimes to think a little bit deeper. Um, I am someone, and many of you may be too, I'm someone who loves Sharpies and Post-its. Um, and I, when I usually go to like a meeting with some folks in my school, I usually show up with some Post-its. Um, and I like, was really sad when I couldn't like, run a, a faculty meeting that way. Um, and then I discovered mural.co. So I do quickly want to share it with you. Um, is this something, Jeff, like that everyone is familiar with already and you've used it? Uh, no, we have not used. Okay, cool. Well, I just, I don't like, you know, I'll share it then. If you guys have been like using it for weeks, then I won't. So you guys should be seeing a screen that is moving. Is that true, Jeff? Or are we still on the slide? I'm still seeing the slide. Okay, let me see if I can do it. I'll try one more time and then if not, I will move on. Oh, there, let's try this one. So now is it moving? Yes. Cool. Okay. So this is free, right? I logged in. I created an empathy map. Um, I actually did this for a team meeting like two weeks ago, and I'm sharing you actually what we came up with. And so you can see under thanks, you know, my kids are still getting school, but it's not the same. How will it be better? Um, parents thinking it's difficult to keep it organized with so many platforms for my child. Certain set of our parents, like what's going to happen with athletics? Like that's number one, like what's happening next year? Um, and we were all able to log in at the same time and build this out together. I just click here and you get a new post-it and then you can type in it. Um, and then we spent some time and we kind of looked for themes so you can click on it and you can drag and drop. Um, so if that's something you'd like to do to kind of do some post-it work and look for themes together, mural.co, um, and I'm not like a paid spokesperson, I just, I think it's cool, um, is a great way to do some of that work and maybe to build out. You should be looking at a cute dog right now. <laughs> maybe build out an empathy map with your team. Okay, are we back to a slide? If you think so. Awesome. So that's something you might think about, right? To ask some of these questions, to pay attention to what you're observing happening in your community, and to think about maybe building an empathy map to help you maybe understand their needs a little bit more crisply. And understanding those needs, now you can design from those needs to really create something new for next year, rather than trying to have an imperfect version of what you used to do, right? And maybe it's that point where you, if you start to think to yourself, oh, I'll just send a survey out, use that as an opportunity to say, can I make everyone's life less complicated by filling out, creating a survey, sending it out, filling it out, and then synthesizing it by saying, can I go actually talk to some people, some users that I'm actually hoping to learn more about and having a conversation and seeing where that gets you by what you were looking for seeing yep. how far it gets you because we've had lots of opportunities where we've had clients who say, I actually think you should talk to this many people. And we've talked to half of that and gotten the same information. So it's kind of this great opportunity that um, identifying the right user, you don't have to talk to every single person. You're kind of identifying that person and talking to enough people to get a, a good sampling of what might be happening in their lives. Cool. Awesome. So I want to give you a moment to just so we get used to this empathy map model of saying, doing, thinking, feeling, maybe type in the chat, what is something you think based on your conversations, your students are currently saying, doing, thinking, or feeling? And if you're an overachiever, and we all are, right? Because we all work in schools, um, you could even try to hit all four. Yeah, great. You want to keep typing, but we will. Moving on, and you might ask yourself, like, what question does your school need to be asking? Or what questions does your school need to be asking in order to hear stories about the needs that are present in your community? Right? What's the tell me about a time that you might be asking? Remembering to follow up with why. I want to move on to designing from scenarios. Um, I think we start with needs as a human-centered organization. Um, I think a lot of people are trying to start with scenarios. Um, and the reason I recommend starting with needs instead of scenarios is I think it actually gives you a lot more flexibility um, to build more resilient systems and structures in a year where the scenario is going to change. So a lot of us, me included, would love to know right now that we can open school, but it's gonna happen on October 1st. Like we can be on campus, but we know the day. Like I would love to know that. Or I would love to know that we can open on the first day of school but we need to space the kids a certain feet apart when they're in the classroom. And that would be a huge 
pain, right? To know like you have to keep the kids six feet apart. But at least if you knew that was the scenario, you could start with a measuring tape and figure out how you might do it. I think part of the challenge we're having, and this is the need for resilient plans and resilient designs, is that the, the scenario won't be known in some ways until the first day of school. And whatever the scenario is that we're operating under probably will change before the end of the school year. Um, in our modeling, I'm talking in my school with other schools about three basic scenarios at, with like infinite variations, right? There's a model where we're on campus, but there's probably some social distancing, increased attention to hygiene that we need to be worrying about. So maybe we're on campus, but with fewer students in a classroom, if we can figure that out. Or we're on campus, but we're not in an, you know, not able to gather in groups of 50 or more, um, or some some version thereof. Or we're on campus, but we're really paying more attention to cleaning and maybe some mask wearing in certain scenarios. There's what we're currently doing, which is some sort of remote learning, either for all or part of the year. Right, that's a basic scenario. Um, and then there's a hybrid model that many people are talking about, perhaps where some students are on campus some days, some students are at home on those days, and then they flip. Um, and the purpose of that would be to reduce the number of bodies in a building at any given time, therefore hopefully reducing the contagion. Um, again, three basic scenarios with many different possibilities because there are lots of things that might be that might uh, affect what that specifically looks like. So how do then do you design? How do you make a plan for next year if you don't know which of these three you're going to be dealing with? And in fact, it's possible that all three of these things will happen at some point in the year. Right? It's not scenario A or B or C, which is what I want and what is so human to want. It really is A and B and C that we have to be ready for. The good news is for designing from needs, right, then we can start to think about how we might translate those needs into many contexts rather than trying to create three 80-page plans for what next year is going to look like. Right? And say, how can we satisfy this needs on campus? How can we do it remotely? How can we do it with social distancing? How can we do it with a hybrid model? So one way we can do that um, is really to ask yourself, like, what are the through lines that can remain consistent in any scenario? Like, what are some ways that you maybe can meet that need no matter which scenario you're in next year? And so just to kind of generate a random assortment of possible through lines in your program for next year, you might say, we know every student's going to have a one-on-one -on -one check-in with their advisor every week. We're going to commit to that. We don't know if we'll be on campus or if we'll be remote, but we know that's going to happen. We might know that every trimester is going to celebrate and it's going to end with a celebration of learning. Or that's a principle in your school that students organize and lead your community meetings. Or in the case of our elementary school, right, we always ask students who've lost a tooth uh, to be acknowledged at morning meeting. Um, maybe you know that even when you're on campus, you're always using Google Classroom. Right, what are the through lines that can be consistent even in many scenarios? Um, based on the needs that you have identified. Um, I want to give you an example of this, and this is from my son's school. My son is an eighth grader here at Tacoma. Um, in their advisory, they eat snacks together because, like, the best thing about advisory or homeroom, we call it advisory, but homeroom, right, is like getting together and having snacks. And you know, if you give middle schoolers snacks, that's when they'll start to talk a little bit about their lives and like what's going on. Like, food really helps. Um, and someone usually they take turns bringing in snacks or someone will go to Costco and buy a box of something or the teacher will have something in the back and they eat the same thing. And part of what's cool about that, right, is there's something human about being a kid eating the same snack as all the other kids, right, instead of like bringing your own snack. So they actually just distributed a bag of advisory snacks and they're meeting on Zoom once a week, um, but they wanted to make sure every kid had the same snack. So everyone got a Rice Krispie treat, goldfish crackers, fruit by the foot or chips. Um, and they decided that was gonna be a through line in advisory. Right, that advisory is always going to be every week, and it's always going to have all the snack, and everyone's going to have the same snack. And in that way, we're going to provide some consistency. And we can't promise parent, parents or teachers or kids that advisory will always be on campus or it'll always be off campus, but we can establish this as a through line to meet that need for connection and also that need kids have to not, right, not be judged for who has what snack. Um, the only way to do this, though, the only way to kind of set some through lines in your program is to actually reduce the number of things that you're committing to do, right? So you can't probably have through lines for every single part of your program. Like, less is more. And so we're going to need to do some thinking about what's essential versus what's nice to have. Um, what's essential, and you're going to make sure you're delivering it or strive to deliver it, no matter what the scenario is, 
versus what's nice to have, but maybe something that you aren't trying to do when you're not on campus. Um, one way to do this as a team is with this simple matrix, which is a start stop continue matrix. You might say based on the spring, um, what did we, what do we need to start? What do we need to stop doing? And what do we need to get to continue? Um, and we in schools, I think we're really good at start. Like we really like starting things or a teacher will have an idea or a parent will come in and have an idea and they'll want to start something. Often it's really hard for us to stop, <laughs> like stop things. Um, but we actually do need to stop trying to do some things if we're going to be consistent about doing, exercising, having one part of our program operate under multiple scenarios. Um, a more in-depth way of doing the same work is with eco-cycle planning. Um, and this is a tool from a book called Liberating Structures. And what it recommends is that we think of all parts of any community or any program or any organization as being in one of four phases, right? There's a kind of a gestation phase in the upper left where something is starting to germinate and maybe it hasn't come to fruition, but it's like an idea that you've been talking about and you're starting to figure out what it might look like. And it's, you know, like there's something there that maybe you wanna really develop as a school community. Then moving to the bottom left, right? There are always practices and ideas that are being born and they're not really strong enough to stand on their own yet. Um, but there's something new there that you wanna cultivate and bring to maturity. There are hopefully parts of our program that are in maturity where you really can benefit from them now because of the work that you've done and the creativity that people have brought to it. And that's the upper right quadrant. And then this again is what we're hard, uh, what is hard for us in schools. There's this bottom right quadrant of there are often parts of our program that need to go in a phase of creative destruction um, where they, you know, they maybe like the nurse log need to um, be part of the forest floor so that something else can grow. Um, there's often, I don't know if you have this experience, often like parents and students will be really excited to like start a new sport. You know, they'll be like, we need to have lacrosse. And you're like, well, I'm not against lacrosse, but I already have like so many teams that I'm trying to fill every year. And it's really hard, of course, at schools to like end a sport, right? Someone might be excited about starting lacrosse, but it's hard to say, let's stop whatever. Let's stop football, right? That's a very part of conversation. So to have a conversation as a community about like what maybe like needs to be plowed under so that other things can emerge. If you're gonna be doing new things to make next year work, what maybe can be set aside for a year? What maybe is time to celebrate but retire as part of what you do as a school? And so I would encourage you to have some conversations with your team where you say, there's a lot we try to do as a school. There's a lot we're thinking about doing for next year as a school. Let's identify all those post-its either on mural virtually or in person if you're able to, and let's put them in one of these four quadrants, right? What tasks does your school always do? What are the parts of your program? What are your rituals, your, your you know, the parts of your year that are, are always how you do things? And what things would you put in each of these quadrants? Um, and I would encourage you, let's use chat for this. Like, what are some things that you would put in gestation, birth, maturity, or creative destruction? Um, in your school. You might think about, right, if you're trying to run certain parts of your program next year in multiple scenarios, what maybe can be set aside for a year? What's in maturity that you really has such value in your community that you want to make sure it works even under multiple scenarios? Right. Greg, when you just said that, it made me think of this on your, when you buy anything online, there's the option of like save for later where yep. like it's in your cart and you could just click save for later. Like what are those things that like in this moment of between triage and adaptation, can we just say like, let's just push that off and see what happens. We, I mean, state testing for most of us this spring didn't happen. Like, and, and what was the result? Yeah, I mean that, that creative destruction quadrant almost might be in two right now. Like what really is like needs to be plowed under and what maybe could just be put in a parking lot, right? Like next year, I don't know that the talent show is gonna happen maybe. And then you wait a year and you see, was anyone upset that you didn't do the talent show? <laughs> or it may be the talent show is something that's in maturity in your school. It has such value as a community builder that you want to make sure to figure out how to make it run, even though you may not be on campus for the whole year. But these can be helpful conversations to have, right, to get to less, to figure out what the less is that you're going to try to do under multiple scenarios. So that's a little bit, we're just trying to give you some ideas for how you might actually design for resilience in your building. I don't want to presume that we've like resolved 
solve every problem for you, but hopefully giving you some things to think about. Um, I do want to talk a little bit. This is the sneak peek that I mentioned about a program that we're building this summer, which is a cohort program where we are forming cohorts of four or five schools um, to come together and uh, in these Design for Resilience cohorts. Um, and um, over the span of a couple weeks, really in like beginning in June and into early July, do some thinking together, do some design thinking work to make plans, to learn with each other, to share ideas with each other, and not only to have some plans for next year, but to learn some skills about design thinking um, as leaders that they then can use on their own um, on an ongoing basis. Um, our hope is to have these cohorts meet together three times a week with a kickoff where you learn some design tools, you practice, we check in and coach your team one-on-one -on -one in the middle of the week, and then have a debrief together at the end. Um, not everyone needs this. This is absolutely something you can start to do on your own, but we know there are schools who approached us and wanted some coaching or wanted a process um, to help move them forward. And so if that's of interest to you, um, you can find more information on our website, which is leadershipanddesign.org. Um, and if you look under teams, you'll find this program or it's just design hyphen for hyphen resilience. If you're interested in being part of that, you can find more information there. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Shifting Our Schools with your host, Jeff Udick. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit sospodcast.org, facebook.com slash Jeff Udick, and on Twitter at judick. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time on Shifting Our Schools.